Hey y'all, hey, welcome to Where's My Blueprint Podcast, where we talk about all things adulting, our experiences as three Black women on this amazing journey of living our best life, trying to support each other as we figure out this ghetto world of adulting. I am joined by my amazing co-hosts, Nay and Sunny D. Hey honeys, I'm Nay, your virtual homegirl who thoughts on almost any and everything. Also, full-time parent, and sometimes you may hear my little one in the background of this podcast. Lo siento, I am sorry. To me, adulting is a game of whack-a-mole. Once you think you have one thing conquered, something else pops right up. Hey everyone, it's Sunny D. And to me, adulting is choosing to be your best self while that laundry piles up and the dogs chew on your good shoes. Yo, this is your girl, Nakai, and I'm your host of Where's My Blueprint Podcast. I randomly burst out in song, Love Ice, and think adulting is a beautiful storm of I get to do what I want to do mixed with what the hell did I sign up for? Thanks for joining us. Now let's get to the episode. Hey, welcome back to Where's My Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver entertaining, educational, and some inspirational thoughts and comments all about adulting. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. Hopefully y'all are out, enjoying life, doing your thing. Okay, you guys. So our question of the week this week, what or who made you feel special this week? So I don't really know if this happened this week or last week because life be life and in my brain be braining. But Jay made me feel special because he suggested I take a staycation for a weekend and I love a good staycation nowadays. I finally learned how to turn off mommy and wife mode and just enter nay mode. So yes, I love me a good staycation. Didn't really work out in the time frame, but the fact that he saw how much I've been doing and am doing, realized that I'm at the threshold of my stress slash overwhelmed cup and and offered and suggested that I take some me time says a lot about him and how much he values me as a person and also me in partnership. So I know for me, my professor, one of my professors has made me feel so intellectually like above my means, I guess, because last week I went to a conference in Florida and it was like an academic conference where I've networked with so many like scholars in, in my field. And we got back, well, long story short, I was supposed to be presenting my research on a panel with two other women. Well, unfortunately, one of the women, her flight got canceled from what I heard, so she wasn't able to make it. And then the other woman, unfortunately, her work was put in the program, even though she wasn't on my specific panel. So there was a typo. So I was the only one who was able to, you know, deliver. And I presented my research and then held an hour of discussion by myself. So I was like, oh my gosh. And at first I didn't think anything of it. I was like, okay, like that was pretty cool <laughs> and when we got back all of a sudden everybody was like you did so well at four solo panels I was like they all know that I, I did this and they were like Dr. Manzik had said that you did so good and you really held your own and then she was talking to other professors and then those professors told us I was like not me going through the grapevine like with it like it's crazy so she really made me feel so just intellectually powerful and just boosted my confidence uh this week about the events that happened the week prior 
saw I was like man like you so yeah that's my little spiel that's amazing that is so cool to do to carry like a solo panel I mean obviously it wasn't set up that way but listen God does what he needs to do yeah look I I, God was speaking to me throughout the the conference so hopefully we'll get into that today but who, who knows but yeah no she really just blew my mind I was like dang and some of the stuff I was saying on that panel too I was like so I don't know she is she really just boosted my spirits this week so I really have to give my kudos to her kudos are very much deserved so congratulations for you to have that experience that's awesome for me this week my sweet adorable husband of mine offered to get my nails done which I do my nails every week like I have my appointment I go it's very much my time to be not a puppy mom and not a wife and go have a cocktail and get my nails done and be pampered and like that's just my time and we were running errands and stuff and I was like I have got to get these done I hadn't done them in almost eight weeks because I put that on the back burner because we had some household stuff that we needed to take care of new appliances furniture stuff like that that we needed to get done so I put it on the back burner and just let these most these claws grow out child broke one right in the middle cussed up a storm it was a travesty and I was like I've got to get my nails done I'm doing it today he was like how much is it and I was like I told him what the average was he was like I'll pay for it and I was like really and I almost declined it like I had to correct myself I almost declined it because I knew that that would take away from whatever he wanted to do with his money he needs a new phone like there's some other stuff that he needed to take care of but I caught myself and allowed him to pamper me as he does in so many other ways but in this particular way it was really sweet for him to just offer so my honey he's a good one I love that like I love like the husbands are acting right and doing what they need to do and y'all are tapping into that femininity that um no you can go ahead and pamper me yes and I want to say who owes to you AD because God like Sunny D tapped on it and I'm gonna put it I'm gonna push it just a little bit more is that God will put you in places and put you at a seat at the fucking table and you were the table like there was no coincidence that those two ladies did not show up he needed you the spotlight on you to shine you so congratulations kudos like if I had real flowers to give you sis I would give you so yes <laughs> but oh my gosh yes and I can only imagine how he used you throughout that whole entire conference and how he's gonna use you today so clap 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 thank you Nikai I I man I appreciate it lately I have been so like oh my gosh why am I getting complimented like oh my gosh like this is weird but like literally you put it perfectly like I was the table and honestly like the spotlight needed to be on me you know and I don't like I don't like to toot my own horn like I don't like to to do any of that I don't want people to you know <laughs> nail over there like beep beep <laughs> but I, I definitely think like yes like my thoughts are valuable and I want them to be shared and you know I want I should be less I shouldn't be so timid to like share those things because honestly I was like I'm solo dello out here like this is wild <laughs> so and it was so funny too because like for our new division like our like that was added to like the regional conference or whatever it was like weird because I was the only one there I was like y'all don't want to talk about identity inclusion and social justice that's crazy <laughs> and so yeah I, I mean God really prepared the opportunity for me and really opened up my eyes but I don't want to take too much time on being academic but yeah that it just really tied into the prompt of like you know 
know who made you feel good this week so thanks for giving me the space oh yes always hence that's what we do we allow women come on here and share their stories that's in our mission so yes and with that girl toot your horn like they say toot 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 make it loud make it proud girl it's, I love the humble brag but don't be humble brag sis it ain't bragging if it's the truth that's true so you just speaking fact because God gave it to you let them use you let them use you and I'll wrap this one up good question of the week Sunny D for me how I felt special this week was actually two ways the first one was as y'all listeners know I had maybe maybe not I don't know if I shared it yet but I I was doing a fast 80 and it was no sugar and no music (laughs) so it finally ended and Sunny D was like check your email check your email and I'm like I don't see no email from you (laughs) so basically she sent me a gift card to go to Dairy Queen to get me an actual blizzard right and I was so happy and so that was the first that was the beginning of the week that made me feel really really special and then to end the week meaning yesterday at work one of my co-workers because he knows um I'm not doing sweets either so he was like when is your uh fast then and I said oh it ended Wednesday he was like okay and so yesterday I come into the office with this huge thing of Costco seaweed on my desk he was like I'm not supporting you keep going like going back to sugar but I will support your seaweed habit so here you go So it was just like such a good week of like having my seaweed and then I'm still getting my um my sweet and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So yeah. Listen, I support the sugar. So I was like, you know what? She almost over this fast. I know she really wanted some Dairy Queen. Sent her a little something. Mind you, I also, because Nakai is very, um, you got to be specific with her. So I was like, you know what? Let me tell her, number one, the email is not coming from me. And to let her know who it was coming from, because she probably thought it was spam. It was just going to delete it anyway. <laughs> Like, I wanted it to be a surprise for her to just go in the email and be like, oh, look. But then I thought about it and I was like, mm, I should probably give her more information because she throw it away. And then there goes that gift card. So, but I listen, I am Team Sweets and I support the cause. Well, I appreciate it. And I thank you. And I'm getting my Dairy Queen today. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So that's my treat today. <laughs> With that, y'all know we do a quote of every single episode. And so today's quote is, you might be temporary in their lives. They might be temporary in your life, but there is nothing temporary about the love or the lesson. By Tonya Crystal? Chrisley? Tania? Tonia? Tanya. I feel they look like Tanya. That's Tanya? We not okay. going down this rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what are your I'm thoughts sorry. on that? Okay. One thing that I really you know enjoy about the quote is it kind of speaks to this idea of like you know people coming to your lives for a reason or a season and for me I I really resonate with that because it's like okay like are you in my life because you actually want to succeed with me your wins are my wins my wins are your wins or are we here just for a season because I'm in the season of winning and when I'm down and out we disappear but when I'm back up again then we like your win is my win and that's not fair that's not equitable right so I really like the fact that it talks about like okay you might be temporary in you know their life or you know they might be temporary in your life but what's important is the lessons that they teach you you know like for me my thing is I, I never like to ask well why did they do that why did they do that to me why would they say something like that why would fill in the blank right I know for me one thing I like to ask is okay well what did they just teach me about themselves what did they just show me about themselves and how do I you know proceed on right? Or how do we rebuild? How do we forgive and move on, right? We can't be friends after that, right? So by asking myself, well, what did they teach me about me? And what did they teach me about them? Two very important questions.
lessons because it's all about the lesson or the joy that they bring you. So anyway, I'm not here to preach. (laughs) I'm not here to preach, but those are my thoughts. So we said earlier, you know, let the Lord use you. The Lord just just used to real, real, real soon. Lord said, oh, you said it. That was a whole entire word. I know it really, it really was. Cause when you start pondering or not pondering, when you started fireballing those questions, I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. But these are great questions, not just to ask yourself, but especially when people are coming in and out of your life. Like when I thought of this quote, I thought of something similar of like, honestly, we live in a world where we don't know the next stranger could be our best friend, right? Our coworker that just started could be a, end up being your sister. You never know if you're one entertaining an angel or seducing or being seduced by the devil. So that's the thing. (laughs) That's the thing that when I read this is like, but you have to understand what's the lesson in every single thing you do. I feel like I should put my church hat on, which doesn't go over this poof. So I don't know how that's going to work, but I agree a thousand percent. AD, I think you are spot on and Nakai followed up with the rebound on it. Like, sorry, I've been, we've been watching a lot of basketball. Anyways, for me, what I thought about with this quote was, I remember, I think about all like past relationships, relationships that you've had like with friends when you were in high school or friends when you were in middle school or college. And if you're still friends with those people to this day, I even think about relationships with not relationships with my exes, but with the family members of my exes. Cause I remember having like going to dinner with an ex's mom and we would talk about everything but him. Like we're not here to talk about him. Like we enjoyed each other's company. But that was only for a short time. So you have people that come in different parts of your life for different reasons and appreciating whatever that time is, whether it is something that is joyful and that brings you happiness and that adds to your life or whether there is lessons to be learned from whatever that experience is. Like, I think in general, everything is temporary because we are not permanent on this earth. But a lot of these lessons, a lot of the love that is shared, that is exchanged, that is given and developed and grow and all that kind of stuff is really the part that has a longevity. So I like this quote and I second and third all of the above. Similarly to all of you all, I like this quote and a part that resonated with me was the part that I added, which is there's nothing temporary about the love or the lesson if you choose to allow it to be. I feel like sometimes you can have situations in love that is temporary because you don't hold on to it. You don't treasure it. You don't nurture it. So there is nothing temporary about it, but you have to make a conscious, concerted effort to make sure that it stays permanent and it doesn't become temporary. So ladies, that was good. I like that quote. And it seems like all of us took something from the same sphere of that quote, but we each, you know, had our own, a little bit different interpretation and thing that we gleaned for it. But y'all, I know y'all hear that voice. I know y'all recognize there is four of us on here and not just three. And for all of our real one day ones, y'all are slightly familiar with that voice. We have once again, back again, Miss AD coming in here, you know, friend of the pod, if you will. And she is coming to talk about foster care. If you are our day one real ones, you know that when we had her episode, we kind of tapped on it a little bit, did a little touch and go. But we did not dwell, 
delve into that part of her story. So we're bringing her back to our Zoom room to go a little bit further into her journey through the foster care system, what she's learned from it, what she endured through it, and just hearing about it in her perspective. So AD, once again, thank you for coming back, bringing it back to our chaotic, crazy, educational, sophisticated ratchet podcast that we have. But for all of the people, you know, our new friends, our new family that are not familiar with you, with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, before I even get into me, I want to thank you three, Nakai, Nay, Sunny D for having me again. This is so exciting. When I got the call, I was like, oh, we running it back. Say less. <laughs> run it back, run it back. So I just want to thank you all again for giving me the platform to be able to, um, you know, share my story through foster care and, and adoption. But for those that don't know me or need a cute little refresher, I was back in the, or on the podcast in December where I was talking about my cute little small business, my virtual bi- vision boards. Um, so essentially, if you don't know who I am, hello, my name is A.D. Alston. I go by she, her pronouns. So essentially, I am a fourth semester, second year grad student. I will be walking the stage in May, like literally three weeks from the recording of this podcast. And essentially what I dive into is um, communication studies. So I have my bachelor's and master's in communication studies. I essentially like to critique and question, um, you know, critical, you know, discourse about how our social protest movements impacting Black women, how are Black women vulnerable or invulnerable to, you know, friends, family, and others. I personally love looking just at rhetorical movements in and of itself and kind of just taking a communication lens on it. I mean, my interests, I love to sing, cook, play the piano. And I think that's about it for a short little bio. And if you are part of this discourse, I am from the great 281 Houston, Texas. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me. Okay. (laughs) So um, again, I'm glad to be here. And I thank these three lovely women for, again, giving me the platform to share who I am. I am here for that intro, y'all, because that was beautiful and I love it. (laughs) So we are going to jump right on in with these questions, but not more of questions, just more of a conversation. And if y'all know me by now, y'all already know I'm I'm the more inquisitive one. So I'm going to ask you a million questions. That's just me because I get, I need clarity. So listener, she is not the more inquisitive one. She just the nosy. No, y'all the nosy ones. I really just be wanting to know the why. Like what's the psychology behind this? And then when I get done, I'm done. But getting started with AD, as you said, and as you already know, had you on the pod before. And so I'm just really excited for you to use or figure out two words that how you would describe um, what being a foster child means to you. I will say the first word is experience. And then the second word is self-navigation, or I guess just navigation. So to get back into the experience, right, you grow up a lot quicker than most children do in the foster care system. You have to figure out not just where you're going, but who you're going to live with. What does the, you know, city look like? And I mean, of course, you know, when entering foster care, so you know, kids might not even be that old to even discern like what's going on. Right. Um, But I was at a ripe age where I had to like, I had enough like knowledge to, you know, know that like, okay, I'm not going to be with my biological mom. I'm going to, you know, be placed somewhere else. So it's an experience in and of itself because, you know, you 
see other cities you 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 essentially kind of pick up on their culture if they have it <laughs> and then I don't know you just kind of have to figure out which segue which takes me to how to navigate that right how do I navigate going to school with new people how do I navigate going to church if the family does go to church you know how do I navigate going to extracurricular things you know do, do, you know am I wanted here and you know am I liked here and this is me speaking to my inner child when I say this, but like, am I going to be safe here? Right. So there are lots of things that you have to essentially navigate. And then of course, again, because you have to kind of fend for yourself within the foster care system, which what it seems like you have to, you know, pick up on that experience a little bit more and, you know, grow beyond your year. So I would say those are the two words that just described that. So when you said about the church, so I'm gonna bring this in because God is already in the room. <laughs> He's in the room. So tell me a little bit about like your faith in all of this like how did your faith play a role in this like were you did you doubt or question God of like well God why would you let this happen are you real what's going on did you have faith in like everything's gonna be okay I trust God so it's funny that we talk about this because back in 2020 I went on a church talk called real talk and it was with one of my good friends Edward and he essentially had kind of asked me a similar question about like well what happened to your faith kind of and when I first got placed into the foster care system I was just at an age where I was trying to get to know God for myself. You know, I was still, you know, involved in the Black church, looking at the rituals, you know, when I'm talking about communion, offering, fellowshipping at the fellowship hall, you know, all of that stuff. I was like, I was making it a part of my routine at that age. And of course, also trying to get a spiritual feeding at 10 is a little difficult because some of those things that, you know, most members in the congregation resonate with, I wasn't quite resonating with because I'm like, I'm 10, like nine. (laughs) What do I do? So I'm like, where does Sunday school at? (laughs) So essentially being ripped from that I, it, my world was turned upside down. I, I, I was trying to figure out who God was and coming into my first, well, cause I stayed with, or I stayed for like a short period of time before I actually was placed in foster care with my godmother. Um, and I stayed with her for about six months until they were like, we can't, you know, keep her here. Like she, y'all aren't blood relatives, which broke her heart. And I'm like, this is the only like consistency that I know right now. Yeah. And so when I was placed, placed into my first foster home, they didn't go to church. They were spiritual, but not religious. So there was no prayer. There was no, it's okay. Like, let's seek God. There were no theistic conversations happening in the household. And another ironic thing was I was supposed to stay with a a black older lady, like, like as my foster mother. But when it came time for her, because she said yes, that she would take me, but then when we got to the door she like never answered like there was a tv on like it looked like she, it just looked like she wasn't even home so I was like dang like this is crazy so we lost the representation we lost the spiritual element so here I am I'm like oh god like <laughs> you know what am I gonna do where do I go so it there was a lot of things that had wavered so I guess a more uh I guess a shorter version to the answer of your question 
question, Nakai. It was challenged. I'll say that. I was questioning a lot of things. I didn't even know where I was going to stay. You know, I'm displaced. So I'm like, I was learning again. I was learning how to say a prayer. I was learning how to, you know, meditate with God. And, you know, I still, even to this day, I struggle with trying to like find rest in him because of, you know, this past like trauma at the beginning of my religious walk with him. That's a lot to process. And the three of us collectively have a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts that we want to dive into. But I am curious because you were not a baby being in the foster care system. You were like, you know, middle school, like, well, like elementary, almost middle school kind of age. And I think typically speaking or statistically speaking, a lot of children in foster care or adoption are usually much younger. So that I'm sure that was interesting for you at that particular age to be put into the foster care system. And it makes me wonder what effects were you aware of at the time that affected you mentally and thinking back on it now as an adult, what type of mentality did that put you in being in the foster care system at that older kid age? So at the time, again, I was 10 with my case opened. I was about 11 when I got put into my first foster home. And of course, in between that time, there was just lots of movement happening, movement that I'd rather not, it's not that I'd rather not get down that rabbit hole. It's just a lot to process. And unfortunately, the time that we had, but just know there was a lot of movement going on. There was a lot of change happening, but God granted me this like peace again, that surpasses all understanding, right? Like we hear about it in the Bible, you know, it's one of the most quoted, you know, verses, you know, to get people, you know, through turbulent times. But honestly, like that was the first time where I felt like this sense of like peace, even though like, I didn't know whose house I was going to be at, right? So one thing I know, when my case first opened, I have a biological half brother and sister. So they also came with me to my first foster home. But then when my biological mother like was starting to get her life back together, they moved back. But I said, no, I was like, you know, I was old enough to like give myself the sense of agency to say like, and I mean, I say sense of agency, but I just knew like my instinct was like, no, I'm not going back. Right. Like it was just like a, like an adverse human reaction. Like, no, thanks. Like, no. And my caseworker then questioned like, what's going on at this house that we need to know of? Because the other two children wanted their mom, but you did not. So like, what is going on? And I had just unloaded everything on the table. I was like, that man that she's with, like, does this, this man is abusive. This, well, not abusive, but I was like, this man hits, this man, you know, does X, Y, Z, you know, put it in 10 year old context. Then they opened up a bigger bag of beans. She, my caseworker, like I could, even today I could see like the, like, oh my gosh, like why did this not come up prior to? And even then for the longest, she was like, well, has he ever hit you? Has he done this? My first reaction was, like, like, cause I didn't, I was scared to disclose that, you know? And, you know, I don't, I don't tell many people that, you know, I'm a victim of domestic abuse, like, and, and, you know, psychological abuse, like that stuff is not fun. You know, at first I was like, no, cause like, again, another immediate reaction of like, if you tell your mom that, like, just say no kind of thing. I, it was, it was a lot to process cause I had already unloaded so much. And then at that point I just like retreated. I was like, I, I've already said too much. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen with my brother and sister. Like I, I probably just put them in jeopardy by just like saying these things. And there, again, there was just a lot of emotional like turmoil that was going on. So, you know, Sunny D, I really was like, I don't know what to do next. Like, I'm just going to stay here. Like, and I don't know, as long as for me again, like it was this weird, like peace that I felt because I know like one, I was safe, like my physiological
physical needs were being met. My safety needs were being met. So I knew I was okay, but it was now just this point of like, okay, well, how do I navigate this new space? I think about myself at that age. I I am not confident that I would have had the self-awareness that you did in those situations and in those circumstances. But like you mentioned earlier, like you are in a sense forced to maybe grow up a little bit faster than other kids in similar ages, because those types of situations, I don't think are what's part of like the natural like progression of childhood. You know what I mean? So having a, a your home disrupted and being placed in other circumstances. And at that point, yeah, your those basic physiological needs are priority number one. So once you get that situated, going back to something that doesn't provide those things for you, I can absolutely understand where you'd be like, yeah, nah, I'm good on that one. That's wild. I want to say kudos to you. And I'm saying it to you as an adult, but I'm actually speaking to that nine or 10 year old little girl in you. And I say kudos to that young lady or that little girl in you for listening to yourself or listening to, we'll call it God or that instinct that the part that makes the hair on your skin grow when you know you're in trouble, right? I don't know what that academically is called. I don't know what it hood is called, but it's something. Or in A's term, sophista ratchet. I don't know what it is, the term for it, but kudos to that nine, nine, t- nine and a half, because you were nine or 10, right? So uh-huh. nine and a half little girl for listening to herself, but also advocating for herself and what, what is the intuition. See, maybe coming with the words, your intuition. <laughs> Because you, I mean, we live life forward to understand it backwards, but not but. And for you to listen to your intuition, to know if I go back, that's a no, but I'm, I could have a great life here. Even if it was at six months with your God mom, I know this life is better. That I, I <laughs> that's so powerful within itself of understanding how that sets you up moving forward of trusting yourself. Because if you can trust yourself at nine years old to make that type of decision, baby. When we said earlier that the reason why you needed the seat, you needed the whole table because you are the table. Think about that nine-year-old that had to make this decision. Now you are able to advocate for yourself, but now you're doing it on a huge platform. And God is like, I needed you to go through that. I needed you to go through that to get you to where you are, to be on that, be on that platform, to be sitting at that table by yourself to know I don't need anybody else because you think I'm by myself but to my to behind me is God to my left are my are the disciples besides Judas we count him out he ain't coming he ain't welcome (laughs) so you got six to your left and five to your right who can touch you nobody okay I'm done for today no the way that you just ministered to my whole entire soul because I always tell people you know when they speak to me you know whether you're the Theistic or not, right? Because I know there's a lot of people who don't believe in God or who believe in a higher being that's not God, right? I always tell people when they speak to me, I hope that they see God, that they don't see me, right? And it's so weird because every time I do something big, it's like I heal that inner child that, you know, had to grow up so fast. And so, you know, kind of going back to the question that was posed about like, well, what was my theistic walk like? And it was like, even though like my relationship with God was budding at that time, God had already had the plan set for me to pull me out of the situation because he saw danger. You know, the peace that he gave me was the peace that I needed to be able to maneuver through, you know, a foster home or well, a 
temporary foster home, a foster home, and then what became my adoptive home, right? Which then became, you know, Texas State, which then became, you know, this, that, and the third, you know? And I, like, it's weird watching myself grow up. And it's so weird when people always ask me, well, tell me about your childhood. Because some parts were graphic. Some parts were rough. Like, I have been at a point in life where I had experienced poverty, you know, being with my biological mom and the person that she was married to, you know, I've seen, you know, there have been some months where we've gone with no water, no groceries, no electricity, nothing, right? We, you know, and of course, on top of that, you know, having to play a glorified babysitter for my brother and sister, that was taxing. And they were, they're too young to know that, right? They were too young to experience like how their, you know, parent was, and I use parent loosely because he's not, right? But also too, I know my little sister has experienced trauma that I will not get into with her father, right? So yes, like I weathered the storm and, you know, it was just, it's the, to this day, it's just amazing to see where I've come from, what I've been through, how I went from absolutely nothing to, you know, having everything that I could ever ask for more, you know, who knew that, like, if I could go back and speak to that little girl, you know, 9, 10, 11, even, and just like show her who I am now, she'd be floored. She'd be like, how did you do it? You know, like, who are you? Right. And it just, it it is just amazing watching myself grow, but also it, it sucks because I didn't get those things that we see in the movies about parents, you know, giving their child the sex talk or the parents, you know, seeing their child go off to college and stuff like I mean yes my adoptive mother did but like my biological mom like seeing that like from that angle right I think it would be you know so 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 powerful if that if I was in the home from where I came from essentially so it it, you just ministered to my entire soul Nakai thank you I think one word, and there's a plethora of words that can come from your story, but one word particularly is resilience. Like all throughout you describing just this habit of what you went through, you hear about the strength and resilience of a young girl who shouldn't have to show this extreme and depth of resiliency. So I'm going to speak not to grown up AD, but to little girl AB, what did you need from your support systems during this time? And not only your support systems as your caregivers, but also your friends, quote unquote friends, and other people, your peers, maybe even your siblings around this time. Like what did little AD need in this situation to make the road maybe a little bit easier or to give her that thought that, okay, I can endure another day? I will say one thing that I felt like I needed outside my caseworker was somebody that looked like me. Um, sorry. <laughs> Because even though like my brother and sister were with me for a short period of time, they went back to, you know, their, my mom. After that, there was nobody that looked like me. My, you know, of course, logistics here, but I I was assigned a lawyer on my case at that point. She was an affluent white woman who was very sweet, but yet still an affluent white woman. And, you know, the judge that I had was an affluent white woman. My foster families, and I do mean both of them, 
them, they were white people, you know, and even though may she rest her soul, my first foster mother, Patty was, in a, ugh, every time I talk about her, I start to cry, but she was an, she's an amazing woman. And, you know, what I do for her, what I do today, you know, is in remembrance of her. Every walk that I, every step that I take is her. And even though like I had people to tell me like, you're beautiful on the inside and out this, that, and the third, but I'm like, I need somebody that looks like me because y'all don't know how to do my hair. Y'all don't know how to like talk to me in the way that I want to be like talked to. Y'all don't go to church. Like I felt like if I had that, it would make my life as a nine-year-old a little easier because when I got into foster care, it felt like I had lost all my church friends, all my friends back home, all the friends that I played like after school with, all the friends that I started to get to know. It felt like I lost everything and had to start from ground zero, which is fine. But I was like throughout this entire walk and even today, like, you know, most of my friends, like, well, not maybe today, today, but like, you know, in high school and throughout, like most of my friends were white. Most of my friends were white or Hispanic, but like, I was like, where are the people that I could talk about the black experience with, you know, as a nine-year-old, you know? And again, I'm coming at it from a very calculated 25 and grown (laughs) standpoint, but like, where, like, who do I talk to about the day that I had? Like, I can't tell, you know, my white friends that I was bullied because they don't, I mean, they're bullied less often because they don't have to walk around every day looking black because they're not, right? Like they don't, you know, get called racial slurs. They don't, they don't go through like what I went through. So I would say, I wish I had a little bit more representation within the system. That seems like such an isolating experience. You know, foster care can be an isolating experience in and of itself, but to add that racial component and not having people or even a person who looks like you to commiserate with during this experience seems very isolating. So what my question is, what was your relationship with your siblings throughout this whole process? And if you, you know, can share, what is your relationship with them now? So back then, I will say I was a little closer with my siblings because of, you know, weekend visits that I was allowed to go on. And and of course, to see my family and see my siblings. And, you know, I was looking back on pictures not that long ago, you know, with like the memories and stuff come up on Facebook and all that stuff. And excuse me, there was a, a picture where it was like my brother, my sister, and then me like standing like in like a cute little like row behind each other. And we were at the park. And I look back on, you know, childhood pictures of, you know, me and my si- uh, sister when she was a baby. And there was like this picture where I was like super uncomfortable holding her because she was so tiny. And I was like trying to smile. <laughs> it was it's cute, but I'm, it's like, please get the baby away because I don't know what to do. And so I look back and I reminisce and, you know, my, my grandmother and their grandmother have lots more pictures that just unlock the vault of of memories that are stored. And I will say with them, we were a lot closer than we are now, um, mainly because, and I never have really verbally stated this, but I feel a sense of disconnect with them because back when I was, you know, actively in the house as an older sister, you know, staying with my biological mom, you know, 
I was their babysitter, right? It didn't feel like they were my brother and sister. It felt like they were my responsibility. And I will say that weathered and tethered our relationship as siblings. And it feels, and even like, of course, my sister now, she's 18. We're uh, what seven years apart. And then my brother and I are 10 years apart. But even then my sister will call me and I'm like, here we go, you know? And it's just like the, like the immediate, I guess, reaction that I've never quite tapped into because I'm like, I don't need to see them that way. Like, you know, you love your sister, right? And it's like, I, I do, like, I love my sister and my brother with all my heart, but uh, because of, you know, me having to take care of them involuntarily, like they don't understand and it's not for them to understand. And I don't even want that on their, on their conscious, but, or consciousness, excuse me. But, um, you know, I had to, and again, being vulnerable here and sharing my story, there are portions of my education where I was going to miss out on because I was at home taking care of my siblings more than I was in the schoolhouse. There would be times where he who shall not be named will call him that. <laughs> he, where their father had, like, he made up these accusations and these lies and saying, like, so-and-so died and so-and-so died. And, you know, this person is in trouble. Like, I need to take her out of school. And he would pull me out of school, like, in the middle of class or whatever. Like, the day had just started. And he would say, he would, you know, take me back home. And he was like, don't say anything. But all of that is not true. I just need you to watch your brother and sister while I go do whatever I, I'm, I'm going to go do or while I go take care of some things. And that man, and again, I'm healed from it, but I do feel like it's just time to like share everything. But that I have seen that man do so many wrongdoings, you know, outside of his marriage that, I mean, I can't even put on the air, right? And so I was the a direct line of support because, I mean, my mom is the only one bringing in income, so he can't call her, right? Because we lose money. And so the first line of defense was me, right? And so it was like, well, you know, here I am trying to get an education, you know, at this point I'm fourth and fifth grade, like, you know, I'm about to be held back from school because I just am missing so much. I can't keep up with my studies. My grades are like failing. And then, you know, I'm the one that's like, well, why are your grades slipping? And it's like, this is not my fault. You know, so it's like, I love my brother and sister, but like to take care of them felt like a responsibility, not like an older sister would. And so even today, I still have those immediate reactions of like, like, I, I can't, you know, and I'm trying to get closer to them. But I think the main thing is right now, it's because I'm not at home. Like I'm, you know, three hours away, you know, getting another degree. So like I, I'm here and they're, you know, back where I'm from and it just, it just, it is what it is. Like they call me if they need me, you know, I talk to my biological mom, like we're still, you know, close and everything, but you know, I just, I disconnect myself. That That's a lot. Girl, tell your story because we didn't come on here for you to be the spokesperson for all foster care kids. We came here because we want to know AD's journey and what it took to get you to be this bomb person that you are today. And hopefully maybe some other child who is in the foster care system can hear you and be an example and you be that person that pushes them to know that they can, you know, make it another day. Or maybe you can change a foster parent who maybe isn't going about things the right way and be that kind of mirror to say, oh, if you keep treating your kid this way, this is the story that they might share one day. So tell your story. Well, I'm not going to say we don't care about them other kids, but this is your time to shine. And this is your time to have the spotlight on you once again. Thank you so much, May. I appreciate it. So, whew, uh, 
now I have my curiosity has peaked and inquisitive questions are flowing. With that, I think I'm going to set it up so it makes a lot more sense. Really, really short. We had to do a simulation at work where it's called COPE. And we basically are these, we get people lives, right? You get randomly picked and put into a group. You, it's specifically for poverty. So we understand what our students are going through because the sp specific campus that I'm at is a, not as affluent as some of the other campuses. And so long story short, my character was, I think I was 13 year old girl. Yeah. 13 year old girl. I had a 15 year old sister and dad, my, we lost lost our mom. She died. Dad is still grieving, we're, but we still have to navigate because rent is due. We literally have $800 in our savings. So we're trying to literally, we're robbing pe Peter to pay Paul. We get into having to pay for our gas. Dad didn't realize it's a white guy. <laughs> privilege. They said, basically the gas person's like, oh, you owe us 500. Instead of asking questions, he just automatically gives 500, but she gives us a hundred back. And it's, 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 it's crazy. Basically it's, it was set up to make me really think of trying to get in the mindset of a 13 year old. And I literally skipped school, got in trouble and had to pay a fee, but, or dad had to pay a fee. I tried to skip school to go get a job. I was like, well, let me help my family out. Let me do this. They almost gave me a job until they were like, oh wait, this is child labor law. <laughs> we can't hire you. But the point of it is that was a simulation for me. This is your real life. To be at such a young age to having to go through that is hard because even as an adult having to put my mind in a 13 year old mindset of like all I really want to do is hang out with my friends and play basketball. Like I really don't want to have to worry about where is my next meal coming from? How are we going to wash car? Having to think about we have what quote unquote is valuable and what can we sell to make ends meet? And your story is so, so powerful on so many levels because you made your decisions, which have been, if you look back, really great decisions moving forward, right? But also understanding that representation matters. You needed to see someone that looked like you. You needed to know there was someone in this world or in your world, right? In your bubble that looks like me, that cares enough to say, you know what? You are a beautiful black daughter or a beautiful black girl. You're going to be something. Words and audience, I hope y'all are listening to this because words are seeds. And I think we spoke about this a long time ago, but what you say to children will grow. And for anyone in the foster care system, understand words are powerful. And, to, and I won't go into a lot of it, but how you said you witnessed some domestic violence, right? That's even harder because now your, your senses are hyper vigilant. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And when I speak with you, you're, you have a, I call it a seven sense in my my opinion with children in foster care of like they can pinpoint the per the danger in the room faster than anyone else because they're alert to it they're tuned to know you're a dangerous person I don't want to be with you which is so hurtful and my heart is like I just want to give you a hug right now <laughs> and I mean hug you but also mean hug the little girl in you because that's a lot for a child to bear anytime you move a kid from their home that's a lot so with all of that being said we talk about this word as being black women right being just black is acclamation and how we unfortunately have to acclimate to having the beautiful white voice to be able to have a beautiful job and to actually talk right versus like bitch no <laughs> you gonna get what you get <laughs> anyway on this journey that you've been on when you hear the word acclamation or acclimating to your environment what does that mean to you so some of what you said is kind of accurate to the um experience that i've faced within the foster care system and not saying that all of it 
it like first of all once I got into my first foster home like it was nice second foster home which ended up clearly being my adoptive home you know was awesome but I will say I had or I felt like I had to acclimate to people's expectations about what a black woman should be when they lay eyes on you so I'll unpack briefly so when I was in middle school I was in band it was lit it was nice they had my little self trying to play this tuba it was crazy I don't know how I did it but we did it and it was peachy cane or whatever and I every time I would walk um you know throughout the hallways lugging around this big old tuba you know trying to get to my class and it was I had a, I had a bully like I had a oh my gosh I had a bully and she for the you know confidentiality reasons we would just call her E. E decided to like you know say like oh you're a burnt biscuit you're this you're that you ghetto blah 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 you know there were other kids who thought that I had to be this um, Shanene character that was circulating on YouTube from a white man whose name was uh, Shane Dawson at the time, 2010, trying to impersonate this Black-esque, which tried to say that the character wasn't Black, but had Black, you know, quote-unquote mannerisms. And so everybody thought that I needed to be a Shanene or a Keisha, right? And they were like, oh, why is your name Amber? Like, your middle name has to be Ghetto. And it's like, no, it's really not, but okay. So I had to, and and this is what really kind of made me waver with my image as a black woman. It's like, well, I'm not like those things, but if people want me to be loud and ghetto to fulfill their expectations, then I'll do it. And so, you know, I, you know, was walking around class being loud and stuff and being what they thought was ghetto. So as you know, you are now this beautiful powerhouse of a young lady, right? Who's just getting started, who's just breaking in the game. So you're a powerhouse now, but I cannot wait to see you like not even five years but like two years from now and so because I know you about to you about to bust some doors open no let me rephrase it you don't even got to bust the doors open because God is just about to open a pathway for you that you just gonna walk through so smoothly and I'm here for it and I cannot wait to see that and so with your transition of being this beautiful amazing person that you have become and understanding where you have started right the impact that it has had on your life how would you describe that in two words I'm quoting first Peter five and seven when I say this first word, but uh, sustaining or like being sustained is my first word. And then um, the second word to describe just the overall journey from start to finish, it's a story. So I don't even know how to like unpack it. <laughs> so because I just, I just blew my mind just now. So I, I say that again, going back to the Bible verse of, uh, first Peter five and seven, which is cash your cares upon you for, you know, he will sustain you. That is the the Bible verse that I kind of chose with that one. But even though God, I was trying to get to know God for myself, God was already planning, like, I'm gonna show you who I am. I'm, I like you. I can't even explain it, but I'm gonna show you who I am. I'm gonna give you the peace along the way. I will sustain who you are and we are going to move together. So although I was not doing the ritualistic, you know, you know, Sunday 
a.m. getting up, getting dolled up as a cute little nine-year-old, 10-year-old, a little girl, whatever. I wasn't in doing the communion like that. I wasn't, you know, in my word like that. I'm going to be full, fully transparent. I wasn't in my word like that. Didn't quite know how to just pray just yet. Still trying to figure out the Lord like for myself. And even though I wasn't connected, I mean, yes, like I, I was baptized. Like I know who God is. I know that, you know, he's my salvation. But he, he, he gave, he was like, I know that you don't even have faith yet and you're trying to figure out what faith is but I'm going to show you why people need faith right so then getting into the second you know my second word how it's a story right you know I, I mean we go from you know how people are like yeah, I had to get it out the mud you know we hear all of those that that language in the trap songs and stuff like I had to get it out the mud you know I had to get it for myself but I'm like well did you really get it for yourself like what does that look like because I know I had to get it for myself I had to get my blackness for myself I had to you know, discover who I was by myself. I really had to, I was pulled from the mud. I'm, I feel like my story is like a rose that is still growing outside of concrete, like from the concrete, you know, you go from rock bottom and you still are able to produce this, this plant, right? This just growth. So yeah, I, I think about my life in, in, in foster care and going from start to finish in, in that way. Eddie, we can tell that though there has been a lot that has come into your life, trials, tribulations, everything else. You are, if not a healed individual, a healing individual, meaning that you are in the process of healing from the hurts and the trauma of your past little girl self. So could you briefly tell us what exactly you've had to heal from and what you're currently still healing from in regards to your journey through foster care? So I have had to heal from neglect. I've had to heal from abuse. I've had to heal from growing up too fast. I've had to heal from loss, right? Like I've had to heal from the physical loss, you know, because I lost my first foster mother to um, lung cancer. And then this like sense of metaphorical loss of my biological mother, because like when, when she signed her birthrights away to me, ironically, on my birthday, it was my 13th birthday. And when she signed her rights away to me, I think of it as a thank you. But I, and I mean, I guess I could say I'm still healing from it a little bit because it does like, you know, touch me a little bit, but it was like a thank you. But it was also like a, I can't provide for you in the way that you deserve. And I know that you have great things, you know, planned, but also too, it was a lot, right? Because I knew I couldn't get her back. I, I was awarded to the state. I was, you know, I don't want to say like an orphan, but I mean, the state had custody. So it was like, well, what did you, like, what did you do? Why did you do that? You know, but you know, without my mom's sacrifice, I feel like God spoke to her in that moment that was like, you know, are you going to give away your prized possession or are you going to be selfish? If you do this here, I, I have so much plan. And so I know it was a part of his divine plan, but it's still, it still hurt. Like, it, like my human, I was like, why would she do that? You know? And, um, you know, at the time I found out from my therapist, I didn't even find out from her and, you know, which sucked, but I mean, I'm pretty, I, I guess again, it was like a blessing in disguise because, you know, I, I didn't talk to her for a couple of weeks because I was, I was still processing what happened. And, you know, at this time I was already in my second foster 
home or in that in that transition. But anyway, and so I mean, that is something that like I've healed from. But when I talk about it, I'm like, okay, well, maybe I still have a little more healing to do. In my adult life, I am still trying to heal the need for like responsibility. Like I love children. I and ironically, I even want to have my own children. I'm maybe fostering or bi- biological, right? I want to have children, but I am still trying to grapple with, well, do I want that responsibility because you had to do it for your brother's, you know, first two years of his life. You had to do it for your sister's like, you know, five years of life. Like, do you want that responsibility again? And so it's like, I- I'm trying to grapple with the fact, you know, that that's completely different. Like I need to disconnect that, you know, because I want to love my children, but like, I don't want that that feeling or that, that consciousness on me where, where it doesn't need to be. So I will say that, you know, those are some things that I'm really trying to heal from or have healed from. I'm not saying that they're not triggering or not traumatic because, you know, as, you know, a foster care person or a person that's been adopted, like some of those things, if you're put in those situations, they are triggering. They do, you know, induce like a chemical where it's like a fight or flight response. So, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm just like strong black woman, like that's not me, right? But I will say that if like you can talk about those things and I'll be okay for the most part, but just know that, you know, healing is not a linear process. Most definitely is not a linear process. So what are a few things that you are doing or have done to move on that healing process? Prayer, journaling, um, doing things that I enjoy, really leaning more on God to show me who I am and giving me the courage to walk and who he has called me to, to be, not letting my past designate or dictate my future because even though I was dealt a hand I could have easily been like what was me I've done I've been through these things this man hurt me this woman hurt me this you know I've been through so much I can't even do anything but I chose to stand up and flip the script and move on with my life you know I use the experiences that I've been given and honestly I find it really therapeutic for me to use the experiences that I've been given and take those things into academia really sharing my story about like okay we're talking about the the Amer the all American family standard but they're like the family that I grew up in or families that I grew up in the the communication that is happening in these families is not what's being represented in the research so here is what is already exists in the research about foster care and adoptive families here's how I'm going to add to it and I'm going to give you a proposal on why I want to do a qualitative study on foster care of kids and even foster families and adoptive families. Like I really find it therapeutic to liberate others in the way that I was not liberated. So that's, that's how I cope with it. I want to say something that's so again, powerful, like just listening to you speak. And I love it is that, as I said earlier, we got a resident therapist on the pod. So when she gets in her mode, she gets in her mode and she has taught me so much. And one thing she continues to teach me is that you have to give words to all your emotions, right? If it has no words, then it's just circling around like a cyclone until you figure it out and you're going to display it in different medias or methods or frustrations, right? But you have to get down to as what she would always ask me, well, why are you feeling it? Well, what does that mean? Why, 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 why? Like, oh, it'd be frustrated sometimes, but I know she means... 
I know she means nothing but the best for me. And so I want to say like kudos to you because just here listening to your answer to that question of like, what are you healing from? I was like, wow, you have given words to all of these emotions. You have given words to this. So now you have words to it. Now you could really, like you said, healing from it. You're healing from it because you are able to acknowledge it, define it, know what it is and continue to grow. Thank you for the warm affirmations. And I will say, I know it may seem like I'm coming at this from like a very calculated response, but Nakayu, you just mentioned something in regards to putting words to things, putting words to your emotes. That's hard. I Going through it, like I didn't know what to feel, how to feel, how to move forward. Like, you know, all I know was like, I'm sad, I'm hurt. I'm, and I didn't even know what neglect was until I, I heard the buzzword in my, you know, case. And disclaimer, my caseworker was Black, but I saw her less often. So let me, let me preface that. So although like, yes, like I had a Black caseworker and I saw other Black caseworkers, it was seldom that I saw them um, unless it was for a check-in, which is why I'm like, I'm Black navigating this white system. Um, But anyway, so that's another thing. I didn't know how to put words to that at <laughs> 12, 13. I'm like, I don't see nobody that looked like me. <laughs> But it takes time, right? You know, I was in the foster care system for six years before I got adopted. So from 10 to 16, that was my journey. I was the oldest adoption in the county that I was adopted in and even made the newspaper. <laughs> and yeah, front cover, your girl was so like, I was in tears, but they were happy tears because <laughs> I was like, thank God. <laughs> but um, I was the oldest adoption on National Adoption Day for that county. And I, I like, it, it was a long journey journey. And even to this day, like here I am, like, you know, about to be 10 years removed from the system. And I, I'm like, you know, how do I even today still put words to it? So that's why I say healing is not linear, because there are some things that I go back and I'm like, ooh, like, I don't know what to do or even how to bring this to academia. Right. So you brought up a good point. I'm going to say this and I really am going to be done. So when you just said you were the oldest one to graduate, to get adopted in your county, you were on a newspaper and they were like, oh, I just had a thought of like, he was giving you a peek of what you were going to become before you even knew it. Meaning he put you on a newspaper at a certain age to then circle back to what you just said earlier is that you were the seat at the table. You didn't even, you didn't need a seat at the table. You were the table. He's giving you these little, I don't know, like these slithers of peaks of what's happening or what's going to happen in your life. And he gave it to you. He's like, yes, the situation sucks, but you, you, AD, are on the front page of a newspaper. That is no small feat because what I'm going to do is you are learning that or I'm putting you here, but now I'm about to elevate you into a whole nother platform where you're now center stage. Baby, when I say you've been, oh, mm, all right, God. And it's so funny because, you know, I, there was a, a prophecy that was, you know, said unto me after this talk that I did for my church um, back in December that will, that literally will forever ring and ring true to my heart. Like, cause I mean, clearly like you got to beware for false prophets because they will just spew information and thinking that they're speaking to your situation or not and it's it's so you, you really have to be careful right but with this prophet first of all my my bishop is prophetic so i understand that she also knows it with other with other people that are prophetic she knows like she can spot the difference before i'm not prophetic at all but she could she knows so when we had this guest bishop you know he was like eyes have not seen and ears have not heard but you know the good things that come from man and you know he 
was like, there are so many more people that you need to reach out to. You need to, you know, resonate with like your, like your story essentially has volumes. And it's so funny that, well, not funny, haha, but like ironic <laughs> that, you know, what you had just mentioned about being the table, you know, God is slowly giving me the, you know, little bits and pieces of what he has in store for me about being on a platform, about using my voice and speaking and, you know, ministering hopefully to other people about like the trials and tribulations that I've gone through. Like I may just consider it as, you know, sharing my testimony, but you know, when I open my mouth and speak, they're like, you went through that. And it's like, okay, I don't look like what I've been through. And I thank God for that. And my, one of my colleagues, I love her to death. She is the sweetest human being ever. And she was like, you are a person that like, like deserves to be heard. You know, you are so inspirational and, and so powerful. And she was like, we know who you are. He knows who you are because you are his, right? And so it's time for others to see who you are. So if he puts you in an isolated room, what are you going to do? Like, who are you going to impress? And so I'm like, man, like <laughs> something, my world is like shaking. Like, <laughs> so it's just amazing how, you know, I just, I'm given these opportunities just to, you know, share and circulate my story. So, you know, I thank you for, for mentioning that, Nakai. Amy, what advice would you give current or potential caregivers when relating to their foster children or entering their children into their homes slash lives? You know, we talk about this in research, but research hat off, scholarly hat off, initiation matters. How you initiate the child into your home matters. If you start off on a bad foot without considering what that child has already gone through, I mean, yes, you see the case on paper, you understand where they've been. And if, you know, you come across a quote unquote problem child, you don't continue to treat that child as if they are a problem. What you do is at that point, you analyze the child's behavior and you really come at it at like, you know, considering another person, like, what can I do for you? How can I make you feel better? Right? Not, oh, you're this, that, and the third, you know, you're so disruptive, right? Figure out what is ailing that child. Why are they feeling the way that they do, right? Because they can talk to a therapist all day and night, but if you, if they come back home and they don't necessarily feel like you care, well, they are going to continue the disruptive behavior. So how you introduce yourself as a foster parent matters. And this is a more systemic issue, right? But we, representation is something that is so, so, so important. So even though, again, most of the families within the foster care system are white, they're middle to upper class, like because they have the money to do so. But even if you are not a person of that child's demographic, you better find somebody who matches that child's demographic. If it's a family friend, somebody who you is who is a a coworker, a, a, a colleague of some sort, a mentor, somebody who you consider a friend, find a person to say, hey, I have a child who's doing X, Y, and Z, and I would love it if you would just like, you know, mentor them or, you know, because I, I know I can't, right? And I can parent the child and I can you know, give the advice, but what good is the advice going to do if I don't give the space necessary? So finding the representation, analyzing what that child needs 
And lastly, making sure that you don't treat that child as less than because they're a foster child. There is this negative connotation in media, and I'm going to quote one of my favorite movies of all time when I say this, and I hate that I do this, but The Cheetah Girls pins a negative light on... <laughs> I know why, right? You thought I was going to say something serious. I'm going to shake the room. No, The Cheetah Girls pins foster care being in the system in a negative light, the whole orphanage situation. And why didn't you tell me you were a foster kid? The, the othering, the differentiation, the you know minimization of the experience is something that media tries to spin or portray on foster families. And honestly, I came from two and very semi-affluent white families and who weren't, you know, in the Bronx or anything like that, you know, or in LA. And so I really want, you know, I guess foster parents to say, okay, like, I'm not going to treat you less than you are a child, no matter how long you're staying here. If you're a temporary or permanent placement, you are a child, you are my child, right? And so that creates the sense of belonging and inclusion and the desirability to, you know, have a family that, you know, we as foster children desire. We desire, you know, the needs to feel safe, the need, the, I guess, the understanding that there will be food on the table, the understanding that there will be comfort and other, you know, resources applied outside of the case in and of itself. So that is the advice that I give to caregivers. And if I may add, I want to speak to foster children of all ages, but primarily because, of course, y'all are tailored to an older audience. If you are a person who has come out of the foster care system, if you are a person that has come out of the adoption process with no resources, just know that you are resilient. If you have not heard it today, you are somebody, you are smart, you are brave to go into this next part of your life. Do not let your past define who you are. You have the power to take what you have been through and make something out of it. Write a book, be a poet, get into, you know, academia if you're a nerd, find an interest of yours and share your story because it matters. And we need more people in the conversation who can say, I've done it. I've been through it. Here's how I'm getting through it. And here is how I need the support or desire support. And again, connect with other people who are foster children in your network. Connect with me. I don't know <laughs> if you'd like, but find people who can really understand your story because there are lots of people who don't understand the privilege that they have to grow up in their family. That is a, a bloodline privilege is a thing and it is so real. And the oppression that comes with this sense of orphanage, it, it happens in small little microaggressions that can turn into something big. So that's my advice. Thank you. Lord, in case y'all didn't realize that AD just put the benediction on this conversation, well, this portion of the conversation, if we was at church, the doors of the church would be open. But since we're not, y'all, y'all can't see it, but AD to hit us with the now unto him, all my church kids, if you know, you know. I do just want to point out one thing. For those of us that are faith-based or have had a, a history of following a faith, religion, spirituality, or whatever, one of the questions that has popped into my mind recently is where is God in the story? Over the past year or so, I've been looking at Bible stories with this particular perspective. And I just want to say, AD, he's everywhere in your story. He's 
there at the beginning, in the middle. He's there right now. Every time you would say something, it was very apparent that he was very much present in all the chaos, all the good times, all of the things, because he's building a particular testimony for you. And you are very much a representation of who he is. So I just wanted to point that out and let you know that if you ever had the question of where's God in the story, he's everywhere. We are transitioning to our favorite segment. Well, one of our favorite segments, which is Moments of Melanation. Moments, Moments of Melanation is where we highlight a Black person doing their thing. Today for Moments of Melanation, we are highlighting. Today for our Moments of Melanation, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Rico Boyd. It might be pronounced Rico. If somebody knows, please correct me. But she's an assistant professor at the University of Houston. And the reason why I wanted to give her a quick shout out is she's done a lot of work with the foster care system, with children's services. Oh, and it's one of the many parts of her study as an assistant professor at this university. And she also works with, I believe she works with a company called Arms Wide. They actually did a really great article on her. And as a result of it, kind of started this initiative of It Takes a Village. So I just wanted to give a quick quote from her personal statement. My work is organized around three areas of inquiry, racial slash ethnic disparities in children's services systems, structure, structural inequality and opportunity in African-American communities and infant slash adolescent health and well-being. I have a strong commitment to conducting research that addresses racial disparities and child welfare outcomes, yet I realize that the patterns of disparity that frequent that frequently manifest in the child welfare system represent a piece of a larger puzzle. Therefore, my broader research agenda focuses on the connection between disparities across service systems and community contexts. Um, and she's particularly interested in advancing the research that explains how structural inequality in community level at the community level shapes the opportunity structure in place for children of color. So the Arms Wide organization started this initiative um, kind of in conjunction with a lot of the research that she's been doing. And I'm so glad that it's inspired an organization to partner with her in creating this initiative, which is It Takes a Village. And for them, they know that Black children are overrepresented in child welfare, and it's a systematic issue. So for instance, and mind you, this again is in the Houston area. So in Harris County, Black children make up about 18% of child population and 47% of the children who actually enter the foster foster care system. So compare this to white children, they make up 22% of the child population, but only 16% of them are children who have been removed from their homes. So Black children also face unfair barriers to permanency. So similar to what AD had been mentioning before in the episode, she's had experiences with more than one foster care family. And this is nothing new to a bunch of other Black children that are within the foster care system. And so they um, recently learned this from Rako Boyd, who again is from the University of Houston. She's a graduate college from the University of Houston's Graduate College of Social Work. And they have like this really cool webinar. It's so much information on this link and we'll put it 
in the blog for more information for you guys to take a look at and research. But this initiative is really cool because not only is the focus on understanding that number one, there is a very large disparity, but also providing resources to get like laws and policy changes with it and making sure that these families that are adopting and fostering these Black children also have the resources that they need to help these children with things that they need and resources that they need, community that they need, representation, and finding their own Blackness within a household that may not have that representation. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Rico Boyd, to the University of Houston, to Arms Wide for coming together and creating an initiative that God willing will support and change a lot of these children's lives because they deserve it. Yes, kudos to her. I love that she is not only looking at the issue, but looking at the structural barriers and the systemic barriers that make it a thing that Black children are have a higher rate of foster care. Because I'm also wondering, is that right higher? Because let's be honest, places and systems are harder on Black families to be quote unquote perfect. And not that we want anybody to live in an unsafe situation, but non-Black homes get a lot of chances to do it right. There's a lot of looking the other way when things don't exactly, one plus one don't exactly equal two in them instances. But with Black families, sometimes you dang near got to be the Huxtables. And if you're not the Huxtables, your auntie who could be doing a little bit better, she gets overlooked because she's not one of the Huxtables. So I'm interested if this is another component that her research is looking into, because although research doesn't mean something's automatically going to change, it means that more light, more eyes and the spotlight is being put on these things. So hopefully if enough, enough attention gets put on it, things will actually start making a change. That is a really good point, Nay. I definitely do. Now I'm going to put my research hat back on. <laughs> I definitely do agree. And I definitely do think that us as communication scholars within you know the social science field are in a good position to work with social workers by looking at like, okay, how is the communication being impacted based on these systemic issues, right? So, you know, as Black children, you know, how is our self-esteem being impacted because of, you know, this, this idea of where the poverty line stands? And within my political communication course that I took last semester, we really, actually, my whole entire project, too, had talked about the rhetorical constructions of poverty, you know, on the, like, the senatorial level. And so, essentially, we looked, or I guess representative level, and I looked at Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's, like, a Democrat from, or the Democratic um, representative from New York. And so essentially she is combating like the way that we are framing how poverty is constructed is doing more harm than you think or doing more harm than good about what we are trying to convey here. The poverty line is not substantial. Also on top of that, the services that we provide for Black families to stay intact and not just Black families, but minority families to stay intact is inequitable, right? We are also not considering how we need to be keeping up with the times because things like internet is now a necessity. Things like cable is now a necessity. Things like a computer and having like electronic devices are now necessities, especially too, if a mother cannot go out and work because she's a single mother, like she has to find ways to work from home. Um, providing childcare is now a necessity. And I definitely think like, although yes, social workers, as um, Sunny D had mentioned, are looking at ways that we can manage the, excuse me, wow, manage the disparity, um, we need to be looking at, okay, well, how is 
policy, you know, creating messages of who is considered impoverished and not. Also, too, what are different types of poverty? Like, are we unfortunate? Are we feckless? Are we just criminals and indeserving of being helped out by the government? There are just other things that communication and law and communication and social work can come together and, you know, as an initiative and saying like, hey, like the way that this is being described on the government level is causing a systemic issue in our society about how many, you know, Black children per, you know, square area are being placed in foster care and, you know, in these adoptive families. And also then looking at when they get into the system, they don't even find anybody that looks like them, right? Because again, as I had mentioned in my story, many of the families that, you know, enlist and enroll and volunteer to be foster parents are white because they can afford the fees and the charges and covering differences that like packets and things like that don't necessarily cover or they don't like meet the entire like need of a child. So Black families can't do that because- Yes, although there are Black people who have wealth, not all of us do. So it creates a very starch and polarized, I guess, pool of families that need to be considered. I love your take on this. And kudos to this professor, because I even think of like, you said something earlier of like having the privilege of being raised in your bloodline. And then understanding that most kids come into their bloodline due to either foster care or I even think of like, in my situation, my mom had me way, way, way too young. So then it was like, oh, grandparents are going to raise you, right? But I think of when it says take a village, we immediately, and I don't want to say we because that's an assumption, but generally people think like, oh, you're your family, right? That's your village. But like you said, it's systematic. Your village is from those teachers that could look like you, right? From the person who's at the grocery store, that's the manager that is showing you like what's healthy and what's not healthy. That's part of your village. Your village is every single person that's in your environment, which is good and bad. Good, if they're great people, yay. If they're bad, hell. Your environment <laughs> is hell. But understanding like exactly what you said of like when you have the access, right? If you're white, you may have more access. But even if you're black and you have quote unquote the same access or the same money-wise, like you have the same wealth or income as a white person, like you said, there's more loopholes you have to go through to prove you're worthy of it. You're worthy of this kid coming in to your home when in general you need me more than I need this kid right like it's too many kids in the foster care system for you I'm not saying don't be picky but for you to make POCs go through so many loopholes which is me having to take a breath on that because just remembering when we used to work at our old company of like seeing it in our face so kudos to this professor for doing everything you have done and keep going do not stop you got this I know it's gonna take some work and you may come up against some stuff but you have people that are rooting for you that you don't even know who's rooting for you. So keep going. I'm a pray that God put his hand on you and protect you from whomever is trying to destroy you. But you got this because you're doing God's work at this point. And so that was a great moment of the nation. So thank you, Sunny D. And y'all know we end every single episode with an affirmation. And so today's affirmation comes from our one and amazing, the most powerful, beautiful powerhouse creating her own table, Miss AD. So I'm going to quote Maya Angelou for this affirmation and that is nothing can dim the light that shines from within. It's on my email signature. It's on my personal, my work, my school. It's everywhere and it's not even just for me but it is for people who feel like their light is being impacted by the negative consequences
consequences of the society and the world that we live in. And just know that whatever your talent, whatever your passion, whatever your circumstance, you have a story that needs to be circulated and needs to be shared for everybody to hear. So we can, first of all, hear about the resiliency, the good things that came out of the trials and the tribulations that you were put through. But also we need to hear your story so we can help you continue to go on this journey of healing. So nothing, no, no bad day, no failed relationship, no, you know, failed attempt at whatever it is you're trying to pursue. Nothing can dim the light that shines from within. Light will always prevail. Oh my gosh, that was powerful. We want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, AD. If someone comes to us and asks us, hey, where can I find AD? Do you want to share where they can find you? Absolutely. You can find me, you know, on Instagram. You can, you know, come to me directly on my personal Instagram page. And that is Amber with an extra R and then Alston with an extra N and an underscore, just one little underscore. Um, you can also reach out to me via virtual vision board page. I will. I'll also drop those references later on, of course, but you can find me at envision.co, which is literally like in my Instagram bio, you can just like click on the little hyperlink and it'll take you to um, my Instagram page there. But if you need support and motivation, I am always here. So guys, you know, we come up with all of the content, but this is y'all's podcast too at to some extent. So please, if you have any other topics that you want us to delve more into, any topics you want to hear our takes on, because you know, we keep it popping hot over here. Email us at wmbpod at protonmail.com or hit up that little drop box on our website at wheresmyblueprintpod.com. Once again, you can email us at wmbpod at protonmail.com or drop us a little comment, a little note, a little suggestion at wheresmyblueprintpod.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And y'all ask questions, but no, she got a life too. She got her own life and she doing some big things. So don't be blowing her up. Just asking some questions that you can listen to this episode to hear and to answer. Or listeners, if y'all do find yourself being lengthy with the hitting her up for questions, comments, mentoring, hit up that Zelle and that PayPal as well. That cash app. Bless her sister for her time and her intellect. And that is said from our therapist. And that means it is done. And with it, we thank you. <laughs> thank you so much ad for coming on and being so beautifully vulnerable with us sharing your story because i know this story has will impact so many listeners and so thank you and with that we want to say this episode will be dropping on wednesday and y'all can follow us on spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts. and with that we are over and out goodbye bye peace out